Eclectic Spacewalk presents Conversations, a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems. Everyone has a subjective, awe-inspiring viewpoint of our reality, and the goal of this podcast is to have conversations with unique humans. Eclectic Spacewalk means a broad and diverse range of Earth-based philosophies viewed from outer space. Send us any recommendations on who we should talk to next. But remember, we are not just a podcast. You can subscribe to our Substack newsletter and get first access to every podcast episode at eclecticspacewalk.substack.com. Connect with us on social media by following us on Twitter at eSpacewalk and the hashtag EclecticSpacewalk. Find us on Minds.com at EclecticSpacewalk. And as always, you can find everything on the website, EclecticSpacewalk.com. We want to talk with anyone over our shared humanity and best practices of life. Now, let's have a conversation. Hello, and welcome to Eclectic Spacewalk Conversations. I'm your host, Nicholas McKay. Today, we are joined by Claire Webb. Claire is a historian and anthropologist of science. Her research considers future-facing techno-scientific objects since the post-war era in the United States. She is currently a fellow at the Berggruen Institute and the University of Southern California. Welcome to Conversations, Claire. Thanks for having me. It was a little bit of a mouthful, future-facing techno-scientific <laughs> objects. <laughs> um, but first, let's get into, uh, first off, where, where did you grow up? I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, so lots of beer, lots of brats. So uh, Kugels is your favorite. That's right. <laughs> I actually, I worked for a beer company called Sprecher Beer. That was like my summer job. Okay. Pouring beer at the state fair. Oh, okay. Wisconsin <laughs> yeah. State Fair? Where oh, yeah. That? So that? fun. It's in Milwaukee, um, you know, best, fattest hog, <laughs> uh, everything fried on a stick, right. um, super fun. Oh, yeah. that's great. Mm-hmm. That's great. So uh, Midwest upbringing, so th- that must have been interesting. Now you're here in California. You went to school in MIT, so you've been all over, but your first uh, kind of growings up were in the Midwest. Yeah. Um, actually, my sister, who's moving out to L.A. right now, um, she's been sending me all these uh, photos of Lake Michigan, um, we had a really idyllic pastoral upbringing. Oh, and pastoral, I'm, okay. <laughs> yeah, and I'm very proud to be from Wisconsin. I'm a huge Packers fan. Okay, so, okay. yeah, hopefully Aaron Rodgers won't be leaving anytime <laughs> soon. <but laughs> a little pop culture sports trivia there you put in there. Uh, did you... Did, um, that's interesting, yeah, because Wisconsin, I went to uh, school in Illinois and then lived mm-hmm. in Chicago for a couple of years, and so Wisconsin's very close and very interesting, but love that you, lining kugels, summer shandy would be great right now. I have to say, oh. I don't drink them anymore. Oh, no, <laughs> just like, I've moved on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more of a G&T kind of, oh, okay. kind of now, yeah. <laughs> As it were, okay. So uh, getting back into, like, just getting to know you, what did you want to be when you grew up first? Like, what was your first initial? I'm sorry to say um, my dream remains the same, and it's also what you might expect. Okay. I'd love to be an astronaut. <laughs> yes, fellow astronaut, okay. Yeah, um, you know, I had a telescope when I was a kid and was always very interested in the cosmos. Um, and I think my parents, who were both... Um, 
designers and artists, they showed me and my sister um, the, the Charles and Ray Eames short film, The Power of Ten. Um, oh, okay. I'm not familiar. Okay. Yeah, okay. so it's, uh, I'm sure you've seen versions of it because oh, it's okay. been iterated on I see, I see. Um, many, many times. And in, in fact, uh, the, the Cosmos television series does kind of a, um, a remake of it, if you will. But the original film is uh, you, you start actually um, in Chicago by, mm -hmm. by Lake Michigan, a couple uh, sun tanning, having a picnic, and you zoom out, you're at one meter away, and then 10 meters away, and then 100 meters I away. See, I see. So no. the powers of 10, so you go out, you know, all the way to kind of the superstructures of, of the galaxies, right? right? The, the clots of matter in the universe. And then you zoom all the way back in to, I think, quarks. Oh, I think wow. that they did. Yeah, so, um, you know, it, it stuck with me. Like, it was so resonant for so many, I think, children interested in science, um, just how large and how small our universe is and how we perceive just a, a tiny fraction of it all the time. But mm -hmm. through kind of scientific means, through astrophysical inquiry, we can learn more about our world, both very big and very small. Right. And I think I, there was a, some, I think, stat. It was like between the smallest and the largest structures of the universe. So say, of course, I think it's something as scale bars of 16 sextillion or something like that. Something so like absurd that. So absurd. <laughs> yeah. Just too many zeros, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's interesting. Yes, the powers of 10. I have seen some iterations. Some of version things. of yes, it. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, that goes into, well, was it your parents who were, you know, the people or the influences that stroked your creativity the most, like when you were younger or curiosity maybe is a better word than creativity? I think so. Um, I think my parents had a, uh, they really allowed us to take risks, so mm. we were always, um, maybe my sister more than me, getting um, getting hurt <laughs> a lot. Uh, we were both gymnasts, and so I think kind of developed a sense of, of bravery. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, but they um, both worked in the arts, and mm. my sister is now an artist and a, and a sculptor too, and um, I'm really interested in in words, I think. Um, but when I was in college and high school, I was um, kind of more science-oriented. Gotcha. Uh, and I think I was really inspired by this woman, um, Mariah Mitchell. She was the first professor of Vassar College, man or woman, um, which is where I did my undergraduate mm -hmm. in, in upstate New York. And I think I did some kind of school research project on her, um, like in elementary school. I think I wrote maybe like an acrostic poem with her name. Oh, wow. Yeah, so uh, I, I really, she discovered a comet. Um, her father was really kind of encouraging of women in science in, in the mid-1800s, um, which was a time that, that pathway wasn't available to women, right. and so she was um, she was an inspiration for me. Uh, Marie Curie, love okay. Marie Curie. Okay. Yeah, kind of this Naturally. this dedication to science. Um, yeah, and and learning about there's a wonderful history of women, not just in science but in astronomy in in particular. For sure. So, uh, I mean, in at kind of the um, at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the the 20th century women were expected to do kind of micro tasks, like mm. really kind of labor intensive, mm -hmm. um, but very kind of contains, like needlework, for mm -hmm, instance. Mm -hmm. And there's, I mean, this is not my idea, but historians have often pointed out how astronomy, which is, you know, long stretches of time where nothing really happens, you're in the observatory, um, and also 
just kind of looking at the plates, uh, right? Because it used to be the, these photographic plates oh, that were... Oh, right, right, right. The they, actual technology of it. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah, it was really detail-oriented. So you would look and see um, kind of the how one plate differed from another plate, and mm -hmm. it was really labor-intensive, required attention to detail, was very, this kind of still process, and so astronomy actually ended up attracting a lot of women who mm. often worked for um, kind of male professors. Uh, there's a history of that sure, at, at Harvard, sure. for instance. Um, but astronomy was this pathway that Mariah Mitchell kind of forged and um, took young women into the fold to be astronomers. And so when I went to Vassar, that history was really evident everywhere mm. and really was very inspirational. Um, one of my first weeks of, of college, uh, the department had arranged lunch with uh, an alumna named Vera Rubin, who sadly recently passed away. I was just away. about to ask you, yeah. literally my next question was, how do you think about the hidden figures representations, even though a little bit late, obviously, but nowadays at least Vera Rubin is, you know, it's, it's talked about in parlance in the zeitgeist, you know. Oh well, that's I'm, I'm at least in my, yeah. in my circles. It, like it seems like from ten years ago that like you wouldn't even know her name, and then now it's like oh Vera Rubin. And, like, yeah, so Vera Rubin was um, so she was she was the I think her husband was an astronomer as well, but she you know she talks about going to observatories and there was only like a a, a men's restroom so she would have to like sneak in yes. you know with and like you know young kids in tow so had yes. to be a mother and do her work at the same time but anyway so she she came to lunch and she is famous for uh first kind of putting together that there is something in the universe that we now call dark matter. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the Milky Way gal galaxy and it's, it's, a, it's a disk with spiral arms um, and it, it orbits around um, its center of mass, there's, there's a reason for that shape and there's a reason for kind of all of the gravitational um, movement. Sure. Uh, a, I, I, I don't know, gravitational dynamics and what Vera Rubin discovered is that the rotation curve of the galaxy had to be consistent with some other force that acted on it gravitationally that was not explicable by what astronomers now call um, baryonic matter, which is like the matter that oh, we like see actually, all around yep, us. Yep. Yeah, mm -hmm. so like our clothes, you know, the camera, um, mm -hmm. the soil, uh, the stars. <laughs> there was there was something else, another force acting on it, which we now call dark matter. There's this maybe even more mysterious force called dark energy that people even know less about. But the right. baryonic matter of our universe only constitutes um, four percent right. of of the matter and energy in, in the universe, which is just, you know, really. <laughs> yeah, 4% is very, for everything <laughs> that's out there, all ever, everything, and then it's only 4%, well, where, what's that other 96%? Yep, like, and, yeah. and people, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's a good question, yeah, it's, yeah. It's a great question. Mm -hmm. So Vera Rubin, though, and, and other uh, kind of women figures, is there anyone kind of today that you're more looking up to? I mean, I'm assuming in yourself, you're trying to become that for yourself, but is there anyone that really like, uh, kind of just you, not look up to, I don't want to say that, but is there someone else that you kind of constantly go back to their research or something that to kind of you look up to now? Sure. Um, I think I'd probably have to say Dr. Jill Tarter, who is okay. a, a founding member of the, um, of the SETI Institute and has been doing the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, SETI, uh, mm -hmm. is the initialism um, for her entire career. And 
just her kind of her intense focus, her unwillingness to kind of um, bend toward other people's expectations sure. of her vision, uh, her doggedness toward a task that, uh, you know, in which there's no guarantee of kind of the detection of the objects, aliens. Yeah, right, right. That, that, but you're still that going she's seeking. Full, full on. Yeah, and she's, um, I met her when I was an intern at the SETI Institute. So mm -hmm. I had like a, a summer research position there and got to know her a little bit. But since then, um, I th she's become a mentor and, and now kind of a colleague. And she's very inspirational in the sense that um, she, you know, went to Cornell and was the only, you know, women in a lot of her, was the only woman in, in many of her science classes and pursued this path, often facing derision, um, and just, and forged ahead. And, and, and um, something too that I find so inspiring about Jill is that she really kind of marries this scientific focus and rigor with a hopefulness um, and, and, and I would, I would venture so far to, to categorize it as kind of a, as an ethical standpoint in the world, which is that doing science, searching for others ultimately means cultivating empathy for, um, for our fellow humans. Sure. And, um, and I really admire that. That's great. And then just so we're clear, Jill Tarter is also, uh, she was the famous scientist that was played by Jodie Foster in Contact as well. Yeah, you know, Carl Sagan it? kind of disputes that fact, but okay. it's, it's, it's hard to not see those connections. <laughs> yeah, so um, Jodie Foster's character in Contact, uh, I think, and, and many others think, is, is based on, on Jill. And sure. a lot of the, the personality traits that, um, that Jodie Foster displays um, I would say are accurate. Yeah. Okay. okay. In Jill. Yeah. <laughs> just like kind of mono, you know, focus, intense, intense focus, intense drive. Um, yeah. And then also that must have been uh, very interesting that she went to Cornell. Und was she under Carl Sagan at that time? Because he was at Cornell during that time as you well. Know, and Duran and stuff. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know. I should probably know. No, but I not. don't know. <laughs> yeah. what, um, so not to get too far off, because we'll just do a little quick detour. Uh, what did you think about the, because it was in contact, but the Arecibo telescope, radio telescope, uh -huh. being defunct, you know, great, yeah. like, Destination for, I think it was GoldenEye 2007. There was a movie there, Contact as well. So mm -hmm. I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, but like radio telescopes in general, like, you know, that was the, the largest one and the most, the longest running one. And then now it's defunct and not even working. Yeah, it's sad, right? It's, it's too bad. I, I never got to go. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, and, and it is sad. I think what is hopeful, though, is that there's lots of other kinds of telescopes that astronomers use. So Arecibo um, is one kind of telescope that you can use for SETI research. So right. it's it's um, it doesn't move. Right, <laughs> right? It's, it's in the ground, basically. It's in the ground. Yeah, yeah, it's basically a big hole cut in the ground, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So, and it's an enormous dish, right? Right. There are other kinds of, of steerable telescopes that are... Um, I was just looking at that. Yeah, it like arrays, like right? Like like kind of satellite dishes or something. Yeah. So one 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 dish or one telescope that that SETI researchers often use it's the Parkes Telescope in Australia. It's um, or the Green Bank Telescope, which is in, which is in West Virginia, and they're enormous um, enormous dishes, but you can actually control them. So you can like you can have targeted searches in the sky. Oh, wow. you, can, you can point it to different places instead of it just. Um, 
just kind of doing like a, just kind of the, the what you're looking at being kind of informed by the Earth's rotation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and then there are, of course, other kinds of radio telescopes, like an array of telescopes that if you like putting together kind of pieces Very of a puzzle. small ones, right? Smaller and ones. Like go to one. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what about the James Webb Space Telescope? That's coming out this year. I've I'm been, so excited. I've been hoping yeah. for that for years, and then I'm assuming scientists and other people like are just, you know, Pretty hyped, I would assume. <laughs> I'm super hyped, yeah. So the James Webb Telescope is going to carry, in part, um, one of its jobs is to carry on um, the work that, you know, uh, telescopes like Kepler and TESS are doing, which is kind of categorizing um, the kinds of exoplanets that could possibly mm -hmm. harbor life. Right. So, yeah, it's really exciting. Very and I'm exciting. And I'm very hopeful <laughs> that <laughs> we find life sooner rather than later. That's interesting, uh, and we'll get into that basically whether or not we maybe find life, you know, around us, like in, at Mars and the pores and things like that, or some type of biosignatures through telescopes and such. But uh, just to kind of catch people up, um, you're currently uh, a fellow at the Berggruen Institute and USC. But let's let's take every let's I guess catch everyone up on your academic journey. So like you went to Vassar College, and then so what did you study, and then basically bring us up until. Now, I sure. guess the cliff notes. You know? Yeah, I took, um, so I was an astronomy major and I had two wonderful mentors there, um, Debbie Elmgreen and Fred Cromie. And um, uh, so I was, you know, interested in kind of galaxies and like the large scale kind of structure of the universe. And we also, there's a, there's a great um, telescope there too. So uh, like my campus job was, was working at the telescope. Oh, so very we, cool. Yeah, very so we cool. had like Girl Scouts come in, you know, and we'd look at like the moons of, of Jupiter, you know, we'd look at Saturn's rings and we would also um, peer, I guess, back into the really early universe. So you and your listeners might know that um, light travels at a, at a constant speed. It's the fastest thing in, in the universe that we, that we know about, mm -hmm. um, but it's not instantaneous. And so the light traveling from the sun takes about eight minutes. So the light, the photons that are, you know, are now, that we're now experiencing mm -hmm. began their journey eight minutes ago. Right. So looking back into um, the past requires us to look at things that are farther away. Sure. So the telescope um, at, at Vassar that I worked at, one of, one of the research projects we did was looking at these, these astrophysical objects called quasars, which are these artifacts of the early universe. So the Milky Way, um, we now know, has a massive, a supermassive black hole at its, at its center. It's, um, and the earlier universe was even hotter, it was even more energetic, and what would happen in kind of the, um, in older galaxies, is that a lot of times you'd have these particles string, streaming out, like energetic, really energetic um, particles streaming out. And a quasar is is this type of early galaxy that has these has these kind of jets of, of particles. And if it's um, if if that galaxy happens to be oriented so that one of the jets is in the is in the the path of Earth, like a mm -hmm. direct. It's called a blazar, which is oh, a, okay, okay. It's a really funny. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, like great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, someone in the sixties or seventies made that name up. Yeah, that's Fantastic. for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, and 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 you can look at these at these kinds of objects um, through 
you know, not a super, super sophisticated telescope, you can still kind of perceive the light. So these objects are, the, the light coming from those objects is um, maybe like 10 billion, um, 10 billion years old. So you're really oh, looking wow, into wow, kind wow. of okay. almost, Very old. not almost the beginning of the universe, but much farther back. Right, and you can't get to, what is it, 400,000 years after the Big Bang? That's like the Great Wall or something because it was so energetic and so bright that you can't even, telescopes can't, can't see beyond that, right? Like that's the idea, basically. Right, and we should check with a particle physicist because <laughs> the details are kind of um, escaping me right now, but there, there are lots of different particles that existed in a, in a hotter universe that, that no longer exist now. So photons, um, photons, uh, appeared later. So what we think of oh, as, as light um, happened happened later. later. Yeah, <laughs> at, happened at, later. at some point. Yeah, and um, you know that's what places like uh, CERN, which is the particle accelerator in Geneva. I, I spent a summer there um, working with scientists, um, with with particle physicists, really who try to recreate the conditions of the early universe by whipping around um, uh, whipping around particles at, at near the speed of light. So, you know, you have, uh, how it works most of the time is you have these jets of, of particles and then they're controlled by magnets and they're, mm -hmm. I mean, this is, they're much closer together than these are. And once you get it up to speed, you put the, the two lines of particles in collision with each other. Those kind of those create particles that existed um, that are either hard to know where they are now or um, impossible to perceive now. Mm -hmm. So create, you create the conditions of an early universe to kind of see what kinds of particles existed back then. And um, then that's how we kind of got the uh, observations of the Higgs boson. That's right. Mm -hmm. and, and how that all kind of transformed physics in a, in a sense, you know, mm -hmm. we had found the God particle, et cetera, that gives mass to, to, right, to, that's right. to atoms, et cetera. I know, and I, and I have to interrupt and say that the, the God particle, <laughs> I, all the physicists I talked to there were just, it's not the God particle, like, <laughs> stop, very... yeah, stop calling it that. <laughs> well, I guess we can yeah. easily talk about science communication, because that's one of the things, you know, that I, like, Scientists, had, I, I can guarantee, and from your testimony, is not saying that it's the God particle, but I guarantee you some uh, editor or press person got on that and immediately kind of understood what that meant. And then, you know, it's kind of a very catch-all kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I guess, like, because you were talking earlier about you took even a class to then, uh, as you're going through research, to be able to disseminate kind of the information and stuff. And, like, what would you think that nowadays is maybe the biggest thing that you know science communication needs to work on? Or, or I mean, it doesn't have to be a big question, but or is there good things right now? Because it seems like with smartphones and TikTok and all these other things, like there are ways to storytell and get facts and information out there. But then there's also nefarious things afoot, etc. So, like, do you have any thoughts on science communication in general? Science communication in general, um, I think that I get frustrated that kind of a, a post-truth world um, that we saw with with the rise of, <laughs> I mean, not even the rise of Trump, but kind of misinformation has always percolated. It has never been so, um, so kind of amplified. <laughs> Weaponized. Weaponized, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure, I mean, you sure. use the word nefarious, which I think is um, exactly correct. But in my view, and I, and I think in, in, um, in maybe historians' view and, and journalists' view, 
we live in kind of a, a social milieu in which facts and truth are viewed with more and more um, derision. And I, I, I think that why people become scientists, why we become writers is to uh, is to inquire about the world. Yeah, sure. And so, yeah, I'm not really, <laughs> I'm trying to think, I'm trying to like put together words to answer your question. I think that there is this skepticism about skepticism, I would, mm. I would even say. So we should all be, like skepticism drives us to ask really interesting questions about the world yes. and it leads us to write about the world in in ways that um, are interesting and informative and I think that 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 kind of like skepticism has is now being collapsed with a a mode of viewing the world that doesn't um, that doesn't value truth and I find that really terrifying I'm not really sure it's a problem with science communication I think it's a I think it's a problem with um, with the creation of a certain kind of that that's driven by a really particular form of politics mm. that doesn't um, that doesn't value kind of facts and truth. So it might and, be a level up. It mm -hmm. might be a scale bar up above communication in general, rather than just science communication. Yeah, yeah. I, th I I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I love. I, I mean, I think journalists are. Um, my my mom is a is a professor of of journalism and, and communication. So, yeah, there are all these ways that, that journalists shape our world. There are many different ways to tell the truth. But um, yeah, I, I think that kind of like the uh, in this well, we're not even post Trump because <laughs> he's still kind of <laughs> he's you know, in the weeds. operating. Yeah, <laughs> he's 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 in the weeds. But he's created this appetite for. Um, for the, I mean, use this word, the dissemination of kind of conspiracy that yeah. I that I find really frustrating, and as kind of you alluded to, that that kind of attitude has bled into into science, right? And we sure. and we see that really unfortunately, especially right now with kind of vaccine skepticism, sure. for instance. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So let's get back to um, so yeah, I mean, going back to your <laughs> no, you're looking for truth as we were talking about. So you go to Vassar. We we have a lot of. Uh, um, observations, telescopes, et cetera, yeah. uh, teachings. Um, and then you decide, like, wh why did you decide to pursue, you know, graduate studies? I know you said you mentioned an internship at CERN, internship at Ames Research. So, like, what was kind of, you know, your mindset and all of that? Sure. Uh, I, um, when I was done with college, I didn't think that I wanted to go to graduate school for astronomy. So, I... Uh, yeah, I had some like restaurant jobs. I worked at um, like a few sushi restaurants, okay. which is yeah, I love sushi. <laughs> um, well, so that you're was in a nice. good place. Now. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right, set now. right. I I don't know. I moved to New York. My friends were there. There was kind of this exodus, or like I wouldn't say exodus, a migration from from Vassar to New York. Um, sure. And yeah, I worked at an architecture firm. I learned a lot about design uh, and. Yeah, I just I wanted to go back to school, and it took me four years to kind of figure out what that what that sure. would be. Oh, excuse me. Yeah, and I got really interested. I, I mean, I had always been interested in the search for life beyond Earth from an astronomy perspective, and I've always loved history. And so the project I went in with, which doesn't always happen, um, and you're going to go to grad school, so yeah. you'll you'll figure this out too. <laughs> 
uh, that the project that you start with is not necessarily the project that you end up with. But sure. in my case, I mean, it changed a little bit, of course, but I did really stick with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you yeah. You that's not normal? Because, like, I also wanted to ask you about that. How, how did you even decide on your topic, you know, and stuff like that? Like, how did you, the kind of the process of, like, oh, I just want to do a thing about search for extraterrestrial life. Like, I just kind of want to see, like, progression, I guess you could say, because I think that for you, it seems like you were, you knew what you wanted and you went and got it, but then, like you were saying, that may not be everyone else's, like, path. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny that you say that because um, that, it didn't feel like that at the time. Okay, (laughs) it was all over the place, everything was a journey. Yeah, Yeah, you know, I thought I wanted to be um, a writer, you know, uh, it's it's easy like in, you know, hindsight is 20-20 to like look back and and think that um, it was always going to work out in a in a particular way, but it it could have been many other ways, right? So, uh, yeah, you know, I honestly I don't really have a good answer to your question. (laughs) I, I had this internship at, at the SETI Institute, and I worked with the astronomers there. And, um, you know, the SETI Institute is not just devoted, like, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which Jill, um, Jill Tarter, would, would want, wants to rename, right, the search for extraterrestrial technology, because mm. basically what they are looking for is within kind of this cosmic haystack an indication of some kind of electromagnetic transmission of extraterrestrial origin that would indicate um, that would indicate some kind of artificiality right that it, it wouldn't be created by what we know are kind of natural objects that it would right. be created by it would be a technological artifact that's one part of what the SETI Institute does. They're broadly interested in the search for life beyond Earth, so microbes, um, microbes on Mars. Comets, uh, I'm assuming asteroids. Yeah, like that. right, yeah. You're right. Um, the, so maybe you're alluding to the idea of panspermia, that, that life was brought, um, was brought to our solar system by, um, by you know, some kind of comet that, was, <laughs> that had seeded, seeded life. Uh, or they're also really interested in now at looking at exoplanets atmospheres for evidence of of lively um, processes Mm -hmm. so yeah the SETI Institute does a lot of they do um, they they don't just do kind of the what what we think of um, when we think of like Ellie Arroway you know in in, in her car from contact just listening to like static and stuff yeah Yeah. which is is like not at all what 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 they do Um, not at all yeah but so I I had that wonderful internship there and had been always kind of interested in in the search for life beyond earth and it took me a while to figure out that I wanted to historicize that search and be a historian who um who, who wrote about the history of it rather than kind of being an astronomer myself. Right, right, right. Okay. And then we're definitely going to get into the dissertation a little bit uh, more in depth uh, here in a couple minutes. But I uh, just wanted to kind of maybe a high level view. So um, let's just talk about like what anthropology and history are as disciplines. Like what exactly are, are they? Because I know that like I'm going to graduate school for science, technology, and society, STS. And mm-hmm. then you're graduate school program at MIT was history, anthropology, science, technology, and society. So like, what exactly are history and anthropology in a sense, and then how specifically with STS does it kind of merge? Sure, so uh, I really think that um, what attracted me to it was that interdisciplinarity. My committee, 
I had a I had an amazing committee, uh, which is this group of of scholars who guide you yeah. <laughs> um, as as you write your dissertation, um, and and do research and do coursework. So my advisor, uh, Professor um, David Kaiser at MIT, who is somewhat annoyingly both a physicist and a historian of science. Okay, wow, so he's got yeah. both sides. He yep. really is fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got it. Yeah, <laughs> well, and yeah. So he he was just an incredible advisor. So he and I worked together a lot on kind of the, the, the post-war science era, which is after, um, after World War II, institutions of science, um, and, and my focus is the U.S., so we'll we'll stay local. Um, kind of grew science educate. What did it mean to kind of be educated as a scientist? Dave is really interested in kind of the the pedagogy of science. What does it mean to kind of um, teach things and discover them at at the same at the same time? So, uh, kind of what I mean by that is how does the process of doing science inform um, inform the detection of new of new objects mm -hmm. uh, so that's kind of the social processes so how how as a group um, as a social group how do scientists make make culture right mm -hmm. what is important to them what is their belief system how do they communicate uh, how do they work together to define what science is to peer into kind of corners of our universe, right? How do you how do you go about um, discovering elementary particles? Like how do you how do you go about creating a the standard model of the universe? Mm -hmm. um, what are the social processes behind that, right? So, social studies of science or STS mm -hmm. is um, comes from originates from the perspective that science, like uh, like history, like sociology like anthropology is a mode of world making that is essentially social. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of the STS part. The history part, I was really interested um, in the space age. So what was going on in the late 1950s uh, and the early 19, I guess all of the 1960s and the early 1970s, what was happening in the US that kind of drove this national interest um, in in space sciences, so how how were civilian scientists, you know, biologists, uh, geologists, uh, and also kind of the more on the engineering side too? How how was this group of, of scientists engineers? How were they thinking about what it meant to leave the surface of the Earth to explore the Moon, mm -hmm. to send probes to Mars, to send um, to send you know satellites to, to Venus um, or, or spacecrafts to Venus to like and right uh, we now now we have kind of we're, we're the benefits of this scientific space culture <laughs> yeah, right, that right, right. you know like because it's an edifice and a structure now I mean mm -hmm. but that was still being built in the 60s is right. what you're saying it's like it was almost like they're putting down the the railroad track as the the train is going mm -hmm. you know they're literally like putting it down yeah and and in the in the late 1950s there was this mandate to you know beat the Soviets to the moon oh, sure. With and Sputnik to, and everything yes, yeah and yes. to send and to send men into space to send men to the moon um, so 
I mean, a lot of things were happening, right? There was this kind of ideologically driven set of priorities that was about uh, kind of nationalistic interests. Um, and then there was kind of a lot of basic science research going on. You know, how would, could people survive going right. to space? And something that I'm, I'm working on right now is a smaller project on the use of, of animals in outer space mm. and the use of um, animals in, in high altitude balloons, in rockets, right? Sure. They had no idea what was going to happen. They when just you stuck s- them in there and just said, well, what's up? Like, and, and they, they kind of did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like <laughs> you know? take vital signs and then we'll see what happens, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm pretty sure even the first, like they sent, it was like, a, it was a progression. It was like a mouse and like a dog or something then like a chint or some type of, primate and then it was like actually it just kept going up and up and but uh animals have been used in scientific studies for Mm -hmm. for a long long time and Mm -hmm. not just a space obviously Mm -hmm. Um, right and they're the the two things that that scientists were really kind of concerned with um is the the loss of gravity um Mm. and then uh, the the g-forces both um entering and and um and exiting the atmosphere, right? Where does space begin? Like how right. how much um, acceleration forces can like can you physiologically handle? And so, a lot of the U.S. Um, scientists used used chimps um, and and other and other you know apes, and the the Soviets used dogs because they right. were like easily easily trained. Um, so concerned with gravity, you know, what would happen to your cells in microgravity? What would happen to your what would happen to your lungs in mm-hmm. microgravity? Um, and then the other kind of area of concern was just cosmic radiation. So, um, you know, there are these energetic particles that we're shielded from um, on Earth, but once you kind of get into the high atmosphere and once you get into space, they had no idea would, you know, would mice come back with, with you know, a ton of cancerous cells? You sure. know, would it even be safe to send a man into space? And mm-hmm. so animals were these precursors to kind of start to explore space. And now we, you know, you know, there was the the all all women spacewalk and, and Elon Musk wants to like go live on Mars and like and that and that's kind of the legacy mm-hmm. of scientists who are simply wondering if if we could even go. Um, right, right. Because the technical questions, obviously, will have technical answers about, like, what speed it is you need to get out. But then you, what you're saying is kind of the historical and anthropological, like, society, you know, social questions are much broader and much deeper and go, last much longer as well. I mean, mm-hmm. they, you know, we're sitting here talking decades and decades uh, mm-hmm. about, but we're still being influenced by that as mm-hmm. well as what you're saying. Right, right. And I, and I think it, you know, I just, something that you do as a historian is you get to know these actors who you know are mostly dead um but just kind of to inhabit their minds when Mm. they were when they were young you know when they were um at the beginnings of their or or the the height of their careers uh you know how were they imagining outer space in the 1960s you know reading memos what they wrote each other you know like quick quick handwritten notes that kind of reveal fears and and hopes and dreams that that's what's really right. fun they, as they, a historian yeah mm-hmm. and on the margins really and like first person accounts rather mm-hmm. than like these 
because official published things like they're always going to get that. But like I can imagine a handwritten note between two colleagues it could be more important than in, yeah. in a report or anything like that. Yeah, like what if we did it this way, right? Yeah. And then, right. Oh wow, wow. And then yeah, you yeah. like then you end up seeing well they they did do it that way and that's <laughs> and that's like or what is it? I think it was the, the most famous of that is the wow signal or whatever. Oh, yeah. the per, you know it was like an eight, it was some type of signature that people didn't understand and then the guy was just circled it and was like wow you mm-hmm. know and then that was. A, a long decade or some type of long find to try and figure out what that signal was. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like... And I can still, when you said that, right, I'm imagining like the red, I think it's like the red ink and it's like there's an exclamation mark right, and right, like right. in a he big circle. Extra. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> like over the top, over the top for, for scientists. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, so cool. Well, uh, let's talk about, I guess you could say, then history as a discipline and anthropology and science technology because. Basically, the narratives we tell ourselves about the past, present, and future, like a lot of that is dictated on who was around, who had fun, like who the winners were, if you will, from uh, history, et cetera. So I guess how can we as just people, you know, when we look at history, how can we maybe not get hoodwinked and kind of go down and, and see, uh, well, I'm going to put all my eggs in this narrative basket. You know, mm-hmm. how can people, you know, kind of stay open, but then at the same time be curious? Mm-hmm. I'm going to quote Jill again. <laughs> I feel okay, like we've been talking about her. Yeah. yeah. You know, so she, so SETI is a really interesting field because uh, the scientists who search for technosignatures don't know if, how, when, where that, that object would appear. And Jill said something which I think is really astute, which is, you know, we have these working methods. We use particular telescopes. We have certain data analyses analysis processes. There you go. Uh, yeah. uh, but she said um, something that's always stuck with me, which is that we reserve the right to get smarter. Um, so That's cool. Yeah, like that. it is It is cool. And I think about that, not just about SETI, but <laughs> you know, if I make a mistake, then I'll do it differently. The next time, I mean, um, yeah, what are, what are ways... So your question really is, how can history teach us to move forward yeah like the Uh different narratives because i mean i like basically one of the narratives that have come up is like world war ii and the atomic bombing you know and it's like narratives right now are vastly different than they were say when the atomic bombs happened Mm -hmm. you know but that was still history Mm -hmm. so it's very interesting for like the layman or a person that's just like here existing well what do you know what to believe and i'm not saying they're just journalists and things like that but even thinking about history you know thinking about what was possible and and such because even the people that were um, I'm assuming in the 50s and 60s, their kind of, maybe not range or limit, but it's, it was within itself. And then here in 2021, we have a different concept of that. We have a different kind of understanding of history. So I'm just trying to think about like what normal people or lay, the layman can do and when history is happening, you know, how can uh-huh. they kind of like, you know, be, be, uh, be mindful of the great things, but then also you know, be mindful of bullcrap, you know what I mean, kind of. Sure. So something I've written a little bit about, um, yeah, I'm not sure if this is like about what to believe in science, but something, maybe I'll try to answer your question in a different way, which is that in the 1950s and 60s, people were really preoccupied with the threat of nuclear war, right? That was, I mean, you know, I think it wouldn't, it's not going too far out on a limb to say that that was the defining fear oh, of, yeah, of, sure. of that um, of that generation, mm-hmm. right? Uh, 
And so nuclear fear, we might say, was specific to kind of like a, a post-war world, the emergence of, of Cold War superpowers. Um, that, and, that, and that drove a lot of, and that drove the science that was, that was going on. Now I think this era, and maybe you'll agree with me, could be defined by this fear of, of climate apocalypse. And, and maybe a more recent and acute fear is the kind of um, the collapse of, of global economies and global health systems when we're confronted by a pandemic, sure. which we haven't seen the likes of in, in, a, in 100 years. So kind of to answer your question, and hopefully this is a hopeful answer, <laughs> which is that these, um, these fears that we all share really make poignant, really illuminate that as humans we all need to kind of work together to overcome them. I, maybe that sounds a little bit wishy-washy, but um, the, I think the, the point that I'm trying to get at is that every era is defined by hopes and fears, right? Sure. And, and we continue to move on. And the way to kind of work through them is to do it together. And so in that way, we look at kind of apocalypses of history um, and, and maybe those apocalypses can inform how we deal with the next one. Right, Does right. That so sense? yeah, so it's almost like you're gaming it out, like going through a simulation in your head, almost, you know, mm-hmm. and then hopefully for the best. Um, okay, well, so that you, you just brought up kind of COVID, and and it, I don't, I think this would be the best time to talk about it. But you wrote a brilliant uh, uh, Noma Mag article that basically talks about you know Earth's possible futures, you mm-hmm. know, and then uh, and you just kind of mentioned that kind of that hope. And so I'll just read basically one little paragraph, and then hopefully we can kind of riff on that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thus, uh, fears of terrestrial apocalypse animate pursuits of life and living beyond Earth. But conversely, imagining how life, including human life, might exist in an extraterrestrial context and seeing the planet from outer space has driven imaginations of Earth's possible futures, both hopeful, course-correcting pathways, but also escapist fantasies of extraplanetary colonization. So it seems like it's not a, exactly a utopia dystopia, thing, uh-huh. but, but, it, but it's very easily you know, uh, put up into that. And the course-correcting pathways I see as almost like a regenerative Earth. You know, Everyone's working for the, the regeneration of Earth and Earth's happy and healthy and everything and humans and animals and et cetera. But then also escapist fantasies of extraplanetary colonization. I mean, that's like the, the plot of every sci-fi movie. You yeah. Know? <laughs> so, uh-huh. so how do we kind of use, utilize something like COVID, you know, something like that is history like that as a way to shape our kind of future? Because as you were talking about before, you can almost simulate what if we kept running this history forward, what would it mean? Mm-hmm. And then now we can kind of see in our COVID things of what would that mean in some, some types of areas of lockdown or vaccine passports or other types of uh, things that come up with COVID, how we deal with work from home. So mm-hmm. I just kind of wanted to kind of riff on, on, on that and then it's coming from the possible future. So they're both hopeful in a sense. It just depends on which side you're on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for... Uh, it's always funny to hear someone read back something you wrote. Oh, sure, sure. It can either be good or bad. I was like, yeah. I was like, yeah, it sounds pretty good. (laughs) Um, Yeah, the the point of that article is, uh, my my goal for the article was to call attention to something that I've noticed both in my 
work in the archives and my um, anthropological uh, field work with scientists who search for life beyond Earth is that is that the objects that they seek don't yet exist, and it's unclear if, how, and well they they ever um, they ever might. Um, mm -hmm. So, right, I'm talking about um, you know microbes, you know, on on some exoplanet, or perhaps some kind of like you know oceanic creature, like below, you know, the the oh, ice sheets of oh, yeah, ice of, sheets of Enceladus, sure, sure, yeah, sure. you know, something like that. We we really don't know, but. But because we don't know, my, my understanding, or it's just something I've noticed um, in my research, is that the imagination of planets beyond, of worlds beyond, of beings beyond, of, of life forms that we can't even dream of, um, because, that, um, those, because they exist in an imaginary, they tend to kind of loop back um, Right, and they create this kind of reflexivity to right, an right. invitation to understand how we operate on how we operate on Earth. So, um, you know, what I meant by kind of escapist fantasies of colonization is this impossible dream that going to Mars we would leave behind, you know, all of the social um, ills that we have right. here on Earth. Right? I mean, there could be some kind of, you know, extraplanetary pandemic, you know, on Mars. Um, and uh, I get frustrated that those fantasies are um, often just kind of reinforce or maybe not reinforce, they, they recapitulate a lot of um, oppressive social structures on sure. Earth like um, capitalism, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, ableism, um, you know, and, and for instance, you know, Elon Musk's, if, if, if you have seen um, his kind of fantasy about what about what the colony on Mars would look like. It's it's just a recreation of of suburbia, <laughs> or even worse. I mean, it, and that's the best kind of situation for me. And coming from my grandparents and coal miners, like that mm -hmm. that just you're just talking about scripts and mm -hmm. like basically you're talking about the Pinkertons and you're talking about like all that stuff in the back in the day where. You know, Elon Musk has already said, out of his own words, that it would not be a democracy on Mars. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? He's right. already said on his own words that it would be through debt servitude. That basically the the, the uh, admission tickets, you know, to go would be so expensive that you're going to have to work. But then he said, well, there's going to be plenty of jobs on Mars. So again, it's like it's very interesting to see that that's part of the our future, if you right. will. Right. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Um, one another here. I, I'll say uh, another thing that, out of the article. These threats have, in different ways, revealed how actions are never self-contained in global network systems. Each moment's particular planetary anxieties, pathogenic, climate, nuclear, have animated and informed scientists' pursuit of extraterrestrial life. So maybe that's a, a, a set for extraterrestrial life. But another thing that you said is. Basically, through the coronavirus's march across the world and its disregard for political borders, uh, the environmental movement is not really, you know, gotten so. Well, the environmental movement highlighted the fragility of the planet's entangled life, and the Cold War ushered the concept of global nuclear disaster. So, basically, what you're saying is, anticipations of worlds beyond Earth, places that might be or might be made to be habitable, are made possible by conceiving of Earth as both threatened. And interconnected. Mm -hmm. So interconnected, I think we all know globalism, etc. But then now it's almost like this dystopic kind of over our heads, you know, a threatened kind of uh, thought process makes us think about 
aliens in a different way. Is that is that kind of how how, how it plays out in it, to a layman? I guess you could say. Yeah, I think so. Right. So it's it's this it, exactly like you mentioned. Um, so you know, going back to kind of the the Cold War example, the in, in the archives, right? There was a, a group of civilian scientists who were. Um, who worked within NASA, which was, you know, a really political organization, sure. right? But but the group of civilian scientists were interested in in finding life beyond Earth, and they were interested in working with with Soviet scientists. They they wanted to do everything that they could to find what um, what I describe as a as a universal theory of biology. So so if you know if this if the Darwinian conception of of life is illuminates evolution, right? They hoped that finding life, um, life beyond Earth, hopefully on Mars, um, their, their best bet is that they would find it on Mars, would reveal life's origins. So like moving, a rubric of sorts, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and if we found, if they found life on Mars, they imagined it would give them kind of a blueprint for the kinds of life, a, a universal theory of biology by which they could use as kind of a, a map to find life even beyond our solar system, right. and they thought about this as a very, um, as a as a really kind of hopeful endeavor. They wanted to sketch out a, a universal theory of biology, which um, which you know still doesn't exist. And so they were were really kind of concerned that this um, that these this like Cold War posturing and or nuclear Disaster would prevent them from from finding this like universal theory of biology, for right. instance. Um, then, with with climate change and kind of this environmental consciousness that I think originated in the in the seventies, let's say, which continues. I mean, which has only grown right, right, right. in, in concern since then. The interconnectedness of um, of the Earth, what maybe we call the biosphere, what happens over here, you know, affects. Um, uh, you know, the 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 global climate, the the planetary climate, that makes us realize that Earth is very f- precious and very fragile, and I think should um, serve as kind of an alarm to how we think about inhabiting other worlds. Right? I mean, God, to go back to Elon Musk, right, wanting to like nuke, you know, nuke the poles in order to like heat up the planet. I mean. NASA said that this won't work, but that kind of like brazen disregard for kind of the um, like a, a planetary climate on um, on Mars is directly related to kind of like the ignoring kind of a planetary climate on Earth, and so right. in that in that way, Mars and Earth are in kind of like. Um, in conversation with, or our imaginations of like what we want to do here on Earth is like in direct conversation with like ways that we could inhabit Mars. Sure, sure. And then that's very interesting with how we see that because even, I mean, I don't want to get too brazen in my thing about Elon Musk, but I mean, it seems like it's it's almost psychopathic thinking to then go to Mars without kind of, I don't want to say fixing Earth, but you know what I mean? Like we kind of need to make sure we're good until we go there, I guess you could say, or at least do the things that he's talking about, civilizations and all this other jazz. Um, and just, yeah. yeah, just just to jump in, right, I, I'm often asked, you know, like, would you go to space? Or there, there's this argument that, that you kind sure. of alluded to, which is why don't we kind of fix Earth before worrying about, you know, spending billions of dollars going to, going to Mars or even just outer space exploration, which, 
Which is definitely the end of the argument. I, I don't want to put myself on the end of that. Yeah. But yes, yes. You know, like, I'm with you on this. Which, well, I actually don't buy it. You yeah. know, I, I think that learning about our universe and exploring the cosmos and, and pursuing, pursuing science beyond Earth has um, uh, wonderful consequences for how we understand our own world. And, mm. and kind of the deep thinking required to um, dismantle systems of oppression should be done in conjunction with, instead of, instead of. <laughs> right, right, right. Do you right, know? Right. Yeah, do you yeah. know what it, I you're, mean? You're, yeah, I, I kind of want to think about how um, it's almost like even in science fiction how we think about social systems. I mean, the Red Mars or the Mars trilogy, Kim Stanley Robinson, all those kind of things. It's like, well, there's a, a many different ways that we could skin this cat, you know. But mm-hmm. it's like. In what what ways are we do we need to make sure that because like I agree with you in in some sense like like space the stars are where we need ad astra everything like that you know but then the frontiers mentality I think as well I think frontier is a very like I guess a, a bridge word from the colonialization and stuff like that to then also unbridled curiosity which I am totally for but like how it happens from theory to practice is kind of like where that you know. So let Where me. The made. Yeah, <laughs> yes, no, I'm. I'm glad. I'm glad that you mentioned this. So something that's that I I just found so fascinating is that, um, is that scientists who search for life beyond Earth sometimes invoke colonial um, imagery or like colonial rhetoric, mm-hmm. but in this in this kind of twist, they emplace themselves as like natives to Earth, and um, and in in a direct comparison to kind of like you know, Cortez or like, or Christopher Columbus, like, you know, coming to Earth. But in this case, like, you know, the aliens are, are the Columbuses and, and we hope that they would be better than the, oh, yeah, they, than the original <laughs> version. So, so this is all to say very, that very, I, yeah, that I think, good. that I think, um, that I think indigenous studies um, and kind of indigenous knowledge of the world, um, we need to be really kind of aware and those perspectives are absolutely essential when we think about um, inhabiting other worlds. And I mean, to get back to your previous question, how do you not make mistakes of the past? Um, like being aware of a history of colonialism as we kind of work to go off Earth is absolutely essential in, in doing it um, with a sense of care and a sense of hope and a sense of inclusion, Absolutely. and um, and a, and directed by kind of like an environmental consciousness of like of 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 preservation and care and respect. Right, and that's a totally different kind of aspect than like, hey, let's just uh, bi- highest bidder, you know, gets get to get to go on a rocket. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? like, yeah. So we won't get to, too far, but. Um, yeah, this is this is great. Uh, so one thing I guess we can transition into kind of your dissertation uh, in a little bit, but let's kind of set the stage a little bit. Let's. Um, so I, we've talked a little bit about SETI and Breakthrough Listen, Jill Tarter. So SETI search for extraterrestrial intelligence, but as you said, that they're kind of now focused for search for extraterrestrial technology, right? So mm-hmm. more techno signatures kind of things. Um, most of our listeners know about the overview effect, uh, which is that was kind of basically my first essay. That's why I wanted to, you know, start this whole shebang was the, the, that kind of realization. And one of the things that I kind of was the biggest uh, realization was not the things I said in my essay that like you know we have a paper thin atmosphere, like it's hanging in a void. But one of the coolest things that I saw was the Earthrise photo was like the first time that the Earth had seen itself. Uh huh. You know what I mean? And so like. 
not to get too grand philosophical, but I mean, the overview effect is basically the effect, the, the psychological effect that, that astronauts have when they see Earth from outer space. And there's only been, what, 500 or so in the history of human species, around 10 billion or so people. So not a lot of people have experienced this. And, but every single one, when they come back home they or to Earth, they have this grand kind of way of thinking now. They have this grand way of going about the world and they basically have an overview effect about seeing the world and so just wanted to kind of see your effects on like like our our effects through the telescopes of looking out mm-hmm. and then now all of a sudden we have something that's looking back mm-hmm. how does that kind of change our historical kind of lens you know how does that change from us now looking out into the cosmos to then now us looking back through to us but it's not i don't want to say the cosmos looking back at us because I guess it sounds too corny, but um, I guess any thoughts about the overview effect and riffing on that? Yeah, sure. Um, Yeah, I mean, that image, I I am really using this word uh, deliberately, is iconic. Okay, (laughs) yeah, yeah, for sure. Time Magazine, right? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, well, and there there have been different versions of that that image. So So there's the Earth rise, which actually I'm not sure if you... No, but the the um, the astronauts on Apollo eight, um, when they uh, when they first saw Earth from afar, um, you know it was it was uh, the, the story that they tell is just amazing. It's like this it's this performance and process of reorientation, right? Like that's you know that's the Gulf of Mexico like that's Florida where we just like launched. scales are ju- totally different totally yeah. different and they're and they're leaving the atmosphere and they're going um, and they're going toward the moon and you know that's you know that's Africa and that's the Sahara and you you zoom out and you zoom out and then I mean the the Earthrise photo shows this desolate barren bleak gray uh, the the lunar surface and then the earth, um, the earth appearing to rise, so it completely inverts kind of our view from earth, like looking looking out into the moon. I didn't even moon. see that juxtaposition because that's very true. You know, you definitely see a little bit of the barren wasteland. Like there's nothing. All all it is is asteroidal impacts. You know right, I mean? and right. Then you have a, a ball, mm-hmm. the marble of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So actually, it's it's not. I, I don't think that this is that known, but that that image was actually rotated ninety right, degrees. Right, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, um, but but you're right. I mean, the the effect is is the same. And then there's the um, and then there's the blue marble image, which was um, the whole Earth, right? Uh, and then there was the pale blue dot, which Voyager took that Carl Sagan kind of um, facilitated, and it shows just a tiny, tiny Earth, like in the in the vast cosmos. So you get these kind of um, different landscapes, different uh, kind of senses of scale, and they all, as you mentioned, evoke this sense of wonder, right. um, feelings of preciousness for Earth. And, and one of the astronauts, I can't remember who it was, I mean, his sense was that it was both, something weird happened, which is that seeing kind of Earth, or you know, everything that he loved, loved and cared for kind of was made was not visible, right? You mm-hmm. could see the mountains, like you could see the desert, you could see the ocean, you could see the clouds, but you know, his wife and his family, um, everything that he cared about was on this kind of island in space mm-hmm. as they were going farther and farther away for it. But the the fact of not seeing it both um, like endeared them even more to him, this like this center of liveliness in the universe. Just something else I think is, is really interesting too is that 
um, Heidegger, the philosopher, mm -hmm. he had the opposite reaction to kind of the 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 um, the feeling that you're describing, which is that kind of the disappearance of of technology, what humans make, the the that you can't see like roads and, and bridges and, mm. and, and buildings and kind of everything made by human hands had this deeply psychological effect that for him was the terrifying and the, and the sublime. So people have these um, really different reactions to, right. seeing, to seeing Earth from the cosmos, right? Um, but, you know, illuminated by the sun, you know, glowing in blue, you know, um, Shrouded in the in these white clouds. I mean, it really is magical. I think I, I like the words yeah. that you used: magical, terrifying, and sublime. Mm -hmm. So we'll yeah. leave it at those three. That's okay. good. That's good. Um, well, the sublime too. Just just really quick, right? Yeah. I mean, in in philosophy, the sublime also refers to kind of the the disappearance of the ego. So you 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 stare into the maw of the abyss, and um, yeah. So sublime to me invokes this kind of thought that that we could all be snuffed out, right? right? And that so Earth is even more dear because we're staring kind of apocalypse in the face, right? Really? So, yeah. What is it, the yeah. quote, uh, when you look at, at the abyss, it stares back at you or something like that? Something like quote. that, yeah. yeah. I like, yeah. uh, messed that up, but yeah. you know, yeah. we'll get it, we'll get uh -huh. it. Um, so cool, well, okay, so we talked about SETI, talked about the overview effect. Let's really quickly talk, because um, if we're seeing back, I guess you'd say, with the overview effect, Something that, that I've been a part of and that you've kind of uh, studied or research, I guess, uh, happenstance, is like seeing ahead, and that's uh, analog Mars simulation missions at MDRS. So I was a, a crew journalist for... An, uh, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So for uh -huh. one of them... Uh, oh, yeah, that's right. So basically, yeah. so at the start of 2017, I started, you know, my year on Mars. For two weeks, I was, you know, inside of a, a module with six other people from around the world, uh, an Indian, uh, two French people, uh, three Americans, and then an Italian. I think that's uh, yeah. But okay. it, 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 um, but yeah. So it was a great time. It was very interesting. But basically, the whole idea is that look, we need to do very expensive and very uh, uh, possibly uh, deadly, I guess you could say, things in space. And so we got to basically. Uh, take down the time and take down the cost of all our experiments. And so why don't we do some of that stuff here in, mm -hmm. in, on Earth? And so we go to southern Utah. We did a couple experiments of like ground sensing, uh, some extra uh, extreme viral bacteria and stuff like that. So basically let's just talk about uh, analog simulation missions because if the overview effect, like we're already up there, we look back at Earth, it's great, search for extraterrestrial life, we're looking, etc. But then MDRS is more of a technical kind of way to like try to get some of those futures, try mm -hmm. to get some of those techno futures and more maybe align or bring forth that. And so just wanted to maybe talk a little bit about that. And then I guess I'll prime this last thing is uh, you mentioned the word resonance. So I, I want you to kind of go into that. Is uh, these scientists, Masseri, I guess that's how you pronounce it, writes, suspend earth and the unfamiliar as a way to imagine distant worlds. A moment in which planetary geologists uncover rocks in the Utah desert, whose morphology they would have they would have expected to find on Mars, the scientists experience what Masari identifies as the effective practice of resonance. So I guess I experienced some some resident resonance. I wasn't a scientist, but thinking about like how uh, these distant worlds would work, but then also having to do it through the uh, confines of being on Earth. 
it's it's an interesting kind of analog mission, but at the same time, it's 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 fruitful, but it's not all encompassing. So I guess yeah. let's talk about some analog missions or, or whatever as research come through. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, so Lisa Misseri uh, went went through my graduate program, and she's been an absolute mentor to me. And now she's an anthropologist at at Yale. So what what she's describing here, if I remember this her work correctly. <laughs> um, is that she's describing a situation in which the the unfamiliar gets tethered to the familiar in this kind of inverted way. So I if if I'm remembering this what we call an ethnographic moment correctly, she's witnessing scientists um, look at some kind of geological formation on Earth having already imagined that specific formation off Earth. Right, right, right. Right. I think the, the idea was they, they kind of found a rock formation in on Mars through some type of sense thing or satellite, and then they tried to find something that was similar on Mars. And, and they, they, and they get really excited. Yeah, yeah. so, so in, this, in this moment of recognition, right, it's not just that we, um, which is, I, I think, kind of getting back to this, this topic of the analog, which is that, right, we're not, it's this really kind of interesting scenario in which we're not transporting Earth, you know, Earth's geology, earthly ways of being, earthly ways of operating to outer space and then performing them on Earth. It's that we're already anticipating the extraterrestrial um, here on Earth, which right. is, which is, yeah. And, and that's, I think, where um, she describes this phenomenon that she calls resonance. Uh, yeah, I don't know too much about the the Mars. I mean, you you know yeah, way more great. than it I do. Yeah, it was a great experience. Uh, but I mean, it was it was definitely now that reading your work and and if I if I went further on into your dissertation, I assumed that I would have more things to pick out of. But as soon as I saw that you had kind of seen some analog simulation missions, I was like, oh, okay, this is this is interesting. Well, so yeah, so let me try let me just try to answer your question again. So analogs for me come in in the the dissertation. Um, analogy is a form of reasoning, right? Yes, it's yes. different than than metaphor. It's like different than simile. I'm I'm forgetting how they all kind of um, relate to each other. But analog is um, it's like enough to something in order to kind of under to try to understand what that what that thing is so um, for for my research it's not so much kind of creating a landscape or kind of an experience of living off earth analogs come in when the study scientists I work with try to imagine alien others and how how alike enough they would be to humans um, right. okay. so something that something that came up um, or something that comes up in SETI quite often is the idea of animal um, animal analogs. So sure. okay. how we relate to different non-human animals on Earth, um, how could that be, how could we kind of extrapolate that to how E.T. might see us? So right, um, right. if you kind of uh, remember what we were talking about, the, the speed limit of light, mm -hmm. any technosignature that we, um, that we might intercept uh, would be from this is just like statistically speaking, like probability-wise, uh, scientists infer that it would likely be from an older, an older ET. People like Jill um, and uh, people like Jill kind of assume that because ET would be older than we are now, they would have reached technological maturity eons ago, so right. hundred thousand years ago, a million years ago. We have no idea. 
So let's say that they did that, they might have had to have overcome things like nuclear apocalypse things, and then then they would um, then they would just have longer lifetimes. So we've been we've had radio technology for like 70 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, ET would have had it if they still have it. They would have had that technology for um, millennia longer sure. than sure. we have. Excuse me. So it's a lot of like different inferences, I would say. If ET is older, they would be maybe more technologically mature. If they're technologically mature, and they would have had to have overcome kind of some dangers that technology invites, they, they might have progressed morally alongside their kind of technological development. Mm. This is not necessarily what anybody knows. This is not even necessarily what I believe it's it's what I, I'm kind of just it's summarizing, an like you said, like it's, yeah. it's, so we're inferring this, and then if that's that, then it's this, and yeah. most likely. I, I'm summarizing for you, yeah, like yeah, what sure. what Jill, what Jill, oh, which yeah, what what Jill has told me. Um, so if you think about that, you start to think about ET as this aspirational figure who would be wiser and more peaceful than us. And let's say that they found um, they have technology that's beyond us. So that kind of sets up this analogical relationship if if humans are to aliens like how, how should i do this aliens are to humans as many humans think that they are to animals on earth mm. does that make sense so that's mm -hmm. where the analogy comes in i myself am very wary of kind of setting up um hierarchies of being right sure, sure. um but it's it's just something to think about in terms of um, in terms of technology and communication, uh, how how we interact with with dogs, like how how whales, you know, have different modes of communicating sure. across long distances, mm -hmm. um, how how social groups of bonobos interact, which is really different than how social groups of humans interact. Non-human animals on Earth can inspire ways to think about how we would like to be treated by a more technologically advanced alien. Right. So that's how analogy comes in. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I, I like that you just brought in some of the uh, other dynamics because then I think that's also something that you mentioned in your dissertation that we'll get to that basically you theorize like the analogical comparisons really only come down to three figures, prehistoric human relics, non-human animals, and godlike entities. So like it's very interesting that non-human uh like animals, you know, we can already see different social hierarchies, different like ways of being, different things, but obviously it's not at our consciousness, if not, but there's still ways of organization. There's still ways of biology getting together. Um, so I guess w w this would be a good time then, I, I guess, to go into the Drake equation and the Fermi paradox. So then we'll get it right into your dissertation after that. So the Drake equation, for anyone who doesn't know, basically was uh, an equation sketched out on like a coffee. Hey, this is one of those times in, that you would want the coffee napkin. Yeah. Uh, you know, exactly. Um, a bunch of scientists, I think Enrico Fermi was one of them outside of Chicago, outside of the Fermi lab, that basically postulated about through using inferences what is likelihood of a you know conscious alien civilization out there in the cosmos. And then uh, once kind of that Drake equation, sorry, I, I mixed them up. Francis Drake was the guy who did the equation. Yeah, yeah. And then Enrico Fermi. Frank Drake. Yeah. Oh, Frank Drake. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I'm mixing them up uh -huh. again. Frank Drake. And then uh, 
Enrico Fermi famously quipped back, so where is everybody? Yeah. You know, it's because basically the idea that you were alluding to as well, if these older civilizations have been around for a long, long time, the universe is very vast, but the universe is also very old in real comparisons of that. So I guess, um, do you have a favorite, so the paradox is that it, if people should, if alien civilizations are all, should be out there, the math says that it should, we should absolutely see them everywhere and billboards and all this other stuff and a bunch of techno signatures, then why don't we? And mm -hmm. so there's a bunch of solutions, if you will, about what that is. Uh, my favorite, I think, comes from like Dan Carlin, a hardcore history guy. He basically thinks it's like a pass-fail grade. You know, it's like, that's what it is. Nuclear technology, like nuclear technology is the pass-fail grade of any uh, thing. And just by the sheer nature of the pass-fail grade, not many people make it. You know, not many civilizations make it. And so that the ones that do have a very specific way about going about life, etc. So I don't know if you have a favorite solution or if you want to riff on <laughs> sure. that a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, sure. What, what you, the, the pass-fail thing reminds me of, you know, Chekhov, his... his Anton Chekhov, yes, yes. Yeah, like, you know, his, if, if a gun is introduced in the first act, it's got to go off by act three. three. And I, and I hope, <laughs> I hope that's not the case, right, that once we once we know about nuclear technology that it's inevitable <laughs> yeah and take out nuclear technology for whatever mass mm -hmm. communication or something sure. like that yeah it's yeah a... yeah sure um yeah so uh yeah so frank drake right and and as you as you mentioned um it's not really an equation there's no real solution and um, this is a bunch of variables right that you they kind of inference up and down and so the original one has seven variables and it's you know the rate of star formation how many of those stars have planets how many of those planets are earth-like uh, yes, um, yes, yes. and then the scales well it goes down directly yeah, from goes down. <laughs> right so a lot of a lot of the a lot of the variable or a lot of the turns in the equations have really different um, answers and I think it, the first couple of answers when Frank penned the equation um, we didn't really know that much about the rate of star formation and now scientists have a much um, better understanding mm. of, of, of how many um, because now we know right from kind of the explosion of exoplanets uh, detections uh, not the literal explosions yeah, of right. the exoplanets yeah. <laughs> um, uh, that um, that most stars in the galaxy have planets orbiting them, yeah. and now the question is not not merely if there are if if a lot of those planets are Earth-like, but which of those planets could host life? Because scientists are discovering that there are all all kinds of non-Earth-like planets that that might host what astrobiologists like to call weird forms of life. So, for instance, a tidally locked planet which is, um, you know, half of it is really cold and the other half is really hot because it only one side of her face is its, its host star. Or you have these, um, you have, you know, Jupiter mass planets or you have brown dwarfs, which could also host life. And so kind of how Drake was conceiving of um, how life had to be had to follow kind of Earth's pattern. It has to be in the Goldilocks zone, you know, mm -hmm. um, in what's called a habitable zone, right? Not too hot, not too cold. Yep. Um, it had to have the ingredients for, for what we think of as terrestrial biology. A lot of those assumptions um, have, have expanded, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. But the term that I think, at least for SETI, for SETI science, the term that like really kind of causes problems that we really can't 
know that much more about is the last term, which is the L term, the lifetime of, of the civilization. I keep using this word civilization, which um, we really kind of shouldn't use. Yeah, so yeah, 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 I yeah. Get you. Right, so the society. L, yeah, <laughs> or do society. You even <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, beings who like create technology and how long and how long their lifetime would be. So there's really only one example, which is us, yep. and we don't know the lifetime of our, of, of our, of us being technology. And that would be using. different than if we found life, say, on Mars, in little cracks and crevices, or you know, four feet down or something, versus right. a techno signature from a star, uh -huh. right? Like, right. They don't two... use radio telescopes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're not there yet. Yeah. 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 Um, no, that, that's great. And then another, uh, I wanted to mention this um, because I did the other uh, my favorite. It's, it's not a good solution, if you will, but the, my other favorite is the dark forest theory. So, like, Chick-sun Lee, he did the three-body problem. Oh, yeah, uh, you yeah. Know, the big, you know, sci-fi uh -huh. thrill and stuff. And so the idea is the dark forest theory is that any time a, a, a civilization or a alien kind of grouping gets to a level of consciousness, that they will then kind of invert into themselves. Because then, like you said, we've been just broadcasting radio signals out, like, for 100 years or however long. So... That we're going to get noticed if other technologically advanced civilizations have that type of technology, and so that just is very interesting to think about, like our how we see ourselves in the future, moving on as kind of connected to how we see other aliens and and, and stuff like that. Sure, know? yeah, just just like to to clarify, so what what we call what study scientists call leakage, right? So just radio waves and, and television. Okay, I see. Okay. Yeah, that's that's like kind of an inadvertent um, mm -hmm. in an inadvertent transmission and and study astronomers definitely are open to leakage, but my understanding is that a kind of a directed signal, a narrow band signal, something really powerful that was mm. directed at Earth that's going to drown out any kind of any kind of leakage so that, we'll, that we would get. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I see, I see, yeah. I see, so I see. it's impossible to kind of assume, like, you know, maybe ET has really sensitive technology that is, um, that, that could pick up our leakage for sure. But um, SETI is very, very different than, than METI, which is messaging extraterrestrial gotcha. intelligence, which is really, um, it, it's not what they do at all. Right, and right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so... Um, the retreating into ourselves. Uh, yeah, basically, it's like that as soon as they get knowledgeable, that they understand that they're leakaging out. That they mm -hmm. say, "Okay, well, we're basically broadcasting our come find us, signal, right?" And uh -huh. we don't want that. So right. then now we're going to basically do everything to encrypt it or or do a Dyson sphere around our mm -hmm. star, so then you don't even see it, you know, right. et cetera, et cetera. Like, well, so and that's that's remind me that's what happens in the in the first book, right? Is that is that they don't. Um, is that the Trisolarians mm -hmm. don't know that Earth is there until they get that directed? Oh, signal, right. I, I, right. Honestly, it's yeah. been like three or four years now. Yeah. So now that you mentioned that, that actually might, make, yeah, because then they had to send like something that was like the uh, folding of space or something. I mean, they 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 right. they had some uh, writing in there too. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh -huh. So, um, but yeah, those were my other two the uh, you know two things: the dark forest and then pass fail. So I don't know if and you there's any... yeah there there's one. Well, this this just kind of reminds me of a paper that I think came out. Um, there have been several papers. So again, kind of using the Drake equation as kind of a, a starting point to think about um, if and when and how we might get a techno signature or if ET would know that we are here. 
this this other theory, it's not my favorite theory because I, I hope that it's not true, but there's a, a model um, in which three astrophysicists, I think, kind of game out um, the how how life emerges in the universe and how life dies in the universe. And basically they postulate this homeostatic universe. So, mm. so as, as technology, as life emerges, um, a technology using species would be at the end of their lifetime and die. So the answer to the Fermi paradox mm. is that we have only been technologically, um, uh, we have only been fluent in the kinds of technologies that could perceive technosignatures for a really short period of time. And within that time, right, it's just a sliver of oh, time. Decades, right? yeah, yeah, and so, and, and like, like I said, right, we're also bound by the speed limit of light. And so any, any kind of, yeah. so that's another answer, is that, is that as, as life emerges, societies die, and we exist in a really kind of narrow framework. Um, this paper post, like uses that to postulate that we'll find um, less complex life forms, so like microbes, before we find technology sure. using um, societies later. So yeah, because it's almost like the, the the going theory now is like, is almost like, uh, or at least in pop science and stuff like that, is that you know we'll probably find things on Mars or and cell, or, you know a moon, but it'll probably be very small, you know microbes or something like that. Um, but yeah, de- uh, seeing a techno signature that might be a different ball game, though. You know, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. Well, uh, let's get into this last part. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that the previous stuff wasn't too dense for people, but this, you know, put on your thinking caps. So, okay. Yeah, <laughs> this is this is all you, Claire. Uh, I mean, first off, congrats on publishing a dissertation and graduating. Like that's oh, a huge endeavor. I tried to have. I've tried to think about it. Not that much. Not that much since, at all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because this happened also last fall, right? So it's still within the last year. Okay. Yeah, and we just had our like virtual celebration like oh, last okay. Friday. I know it was so sad and like dinky. <laughs> on yeah, Zoom, on there Zoom. We go. <laughs> yeah, like my the the graduate program mailed me like you know a keychain and this like MIT's mascot is like a beaver. So, oh, so here's some swag. Yeah, here's yeah, some here's swag. <laughs> and my mom. Got me this. It's called a Tam. It's like what doctorates wear. It's like oh, yeah, this, sure, sure, sure. this funny little hat. So like I wore that, you know, Amazing. and it was, and it was like 1 p.m. on on the West Coast, and you know, 4 p.m. So I had like, I think I had like a Lacroix. I didn't even have champagne, <laughs> you know. Like it was kind doing of, the most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so next year, next year we'll do like a celebration. That's yeah. good. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's let's get into the weeds though. Um, this is this is pretty packed with a punch of, of research, of uh, quotes, of everything. I mean, this is 225 pages and 615 citations and footnotes. I mean, we talked about the citations and footnotes. That It should have been longer, <laughs> I think. I definitely should have had one more chapter. <laughs> should have been a, yeah. um, but so let's just, let's just very, uh, let's go high level and then kind of get into the weeds a little bit. Um, so technologies of perception, searches for life and intelligence beyond Earth, is a history of and current work on scientific searches for extraterrestrial life. So this is obviously in, in your words. It is a historical and ethnographic dissertation whose theoretical orientations are informed by studies in science, technology, and society, as well as feminist traditions that examine sensory apprehension, especially those modes that enlist seeing and hearing. 
So again, we talked a little bit about how you picked the topic, a little bit, you know, uh, SETI, Ames Research, etc. But um, putting this all together, I mean, is quite a feat. Uh, so we talked about SETI. Let's let's get into these modes, these enlisting, seeing, and hearing. So you talk about modes of perception, basically. Can we just talk from a very high level about? what kind of your dissertation is about and then how the mechanisms that you talk about uh, that we we use. Sure. Yeah, sure. So um, I think I, I was trying to sketch kind of modes of perception that that, you know, I, I kind of theorized to be specific to the two kinds of searches for life beyond Earth. So if visual technologies of perception could be said to inform kind of searches for microbial life beyond Earth or um, uh, or, or life in, in exoplanetary atmospheres, then listening is SETI's watchword. So the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, um, I, I theorize, is more in line with uh, this, this mode of listening. So, yeah, so, uh, so like we, we were talking about the overview effect and the, um, the technologies it's called tel like televisual technologies mm -hmm. or modes of perception like uh, spectroscopy and and even just photographic images from outer space that that informed how scientists of the post-war era saw Earth from afar and then that became literally the blueprint for right. for kind of this um, searches for other planets that might also host life or or moons that might also host life. Um, Listening and SETI to me is not a literal practice. It's this like figurative practice for um, preparing yourself for someone else to speak to you. Mm. So listening is a mode of waiting. It's like an, an it's an active mode of waiting. And so in my dissertation, I describe how SETI scientists. Uh, um, design the experimental conditions by which the alien will be made to speak. Right. So, yeah, it's... We're already boxing the alien in without the alien even showing up yet already. Well, kinda, I think we're that We're categorizing them? How, how exactly are we doing it? I, no, I kind of think it's the opposite. I think it's, I, think it's cre I think it's performing this kind of radical openness to how a technosignature would appear that causes SETI scientists to do all kinds of different experiments, do mm -hmm. all kinds of different data analysis techniques to do things like all sky surveys, to do things like targeted searches that look at, at you know, specific exoplanets like sure. from the Kepler catalog, um, to do uh, to do kind of the galactic planes. If, if you think about the Milky Way galaxy, you know, we're on, we're on kind of this this arm over here, right. and we point our telescopes to kind of the center. There's more of a probability that um, that that stars, because there's more stars at the at the bulge oh, at, yeah, at the right. disk. Mm, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that those stars will host planets. That those planet from those planets there may there might be um, a technosignature. It's 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 collecting data in in particular ways. So in SETI science, I mean now we're like really in the weeds. There's this trade-off between time and frequency. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I'm I'm trying I'm trying to remember <laughs> what I wrote in the dissertation. <laughs> the the analogy to get back to an analogy is um, you know you're sitting at a you're sitting at a um, at an intersection as we are in LA very often yeah. and and you take a high resolution photograph of a car 
and from that photograph, um, or sorry, a, a, a long exposure of like a few, let, let you, let's say you take a three second exposure. Oh, okay, so, so it's like a moving image, you know, or? Well, or, yeah, okay, you're so. You're taking exposure as in like, the, like letting it roll out, right? Let, let, let's say you take a five second exposure. Okay, of, and right. of And there's like, and the light is red, mm -hmm. and you get all of this photographic detail about the make of the car, the, the color of the sky, and then let's say you take another series of, of photographs, but they're, they're really short exposures, but they're taken 60 seconds apart. And from that image, let's say you're an alien visiting Earth, it's like, oh, the light changed from red to green. Oh, so, I see, right? I see, I see, yes, or, yes, yes. Or this person is not a robot. This person is like drinking, what is that beverage that they're drinking? It's like a coffee, or like they're smoking out of the side of their car. So from one from one image, you get this like really rich, um, but this really rich image, but it's totally compressed in time. It's right. this, you're frozen in time. Right. From the set of kind of you know, let's say you take a photograph every every five minutes, and you see that this car is in static. There are like multiple cars like coming to the intersection. Like oh, like when the light turns, when the light is this color, all these cars stop on this side. So you get like mm. more of a, a narrative story, but you lose all of the detail that you had before. That's actually yeah, real quickly. That's how how the difference between like a photograph mm -hmm. or like a long exposure and like a time lapse. It right, seems. right, right. Because a time right. lapse is like it it takes a photo or a video at each time interval, but then there's a lot happening in between the time. And then another thing you could do is like just long exposure and you get the whole thing, but then you can't, it's less controllable. So that's an interesting trade-off. I should have let you explain this no, analogy because no, 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 no. I'm not a, yeah, not a photographer or anything, but that's, <laughs> you, you have it exactly right. So you can imagine that analogously to how, um, how radio, not just radio telescopes, but any kind of, any kind of telescope that's collecting photons, mm -hmm. um, you have to trade off time or frequency. Right. And so, for instance, SETI scientists will sometimes choose the time domain, or they'll choose to privilege the frequency domain, or they'll kind of put them together, and you lose, you lose bits of both, but you gain, you, you gain something else. And this is, this is a very, to get back to what I was trying to say, is that there are all these ways that SETI scientists try to anticipate how a technosignature will appear, how ET will have behaved. And those kinds of um, experimental design decisions are part of a, of an, um, I'll, I'll just go ahead and use this word, epistemic, which, yeah. is, which, is, which is a word that, ref, that refers to like how knowledge is made. They're epistemic conditions of, of what we call listening. Yep. So it's not Ellie Arroway, you right. know, with, with the, da -dum, da -dum, the heartbeat, um, you know, zooming around kind of the, the, the array of telescopes. It's, um, it's this waiting, it's this anticipation, it's creating the experimental conditions for the alien to speak. Right, and then in that regard, in how we see that and how we, I guess you could say, make our framework is how we then see or perceive them as well. So that mm -hmm. we we are already, I guess, bias is the easiest word. Like we're biasing our kind of mm -hmm. framework, if you will. <laughs> I think so, and and I think that the the scientists that I work with would, um, you know, totally agree. There's just we can only 
perform experiments, you know, at, at, at kind of the limits of our mm. astrophysical knowledge. And, and yeah. we're at the very beginning still. Like we're yeah, still we again, are. putting out the road in front of the track, or the track in front of the train. That's and you know, there's this, well, so maybe it seems like you're a fan of, of sci-fi. There's Absolutely. this, yeah, there's, I don't know if you read Ender's Game, but it's actually from, um, it's not original to Orson Scott Card, the author of that book. There's this there's this, let me just say, there's this device in, in sci-fi literature which is called the Ansible, and it, or it has different names, but basically it, it harnesses the, the power of quantum entanglement to do, oh, okay. to do like instantaneous communication and, and in that way defies kind of the, the strictures of, of the speed of light. Right. I, I think that, you know, E.T. might have developed some kind of Ansible and they're just like, Oh my God! You humans are so silly. Like, why? Are, <laughs> why are you waiting for us to like send you a send you like a, a message that takes forever? Like, yeah. just build an Ansible, and then we can like get on the galactic internet together. <laughs> <laughs> just figure it out. Come on, get yeah, it. Get come on. on. Yeah. That's hilarious. Okay. Well, then I, I don't want to move too 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 far gone. Uh, but you you basically made a. Uh, I don't know if it's a, a new word or phrase, but reflexive alienation. Very, very, <laughs> yeah. very interesting uh, combo of words. Uh, basically, in your own words, reflexive alienation is a reaching for an advanced version of ourselves, in Tartar's words. Uh, it is an act in which imagination of the alien object conjures human subjectivity. So I think that's kind of summarizing what we kind of just, like our bias kind of encodes in the framework of how we see or think about them. But then uh, this last bit... Um, this referential analogical dynamism projecting and returning from human to ET to immortals and back again is an enactment of reflexive alienation. So a mode of meaning making through attention to both a speculative ET and earthly desires for peace and a wondering of futuristic technology. So I think that's a lot of threads that we just kind of yeah. came around and, and cultivated because not only is it our earthly desires for peace and wondering of futuristic technology that we talked about before, you know, almost like a... Not an ethical way, but more so that way. I would say it's an ethics. Okay, for would sure. that be okay? Mm -hmm. So th maybe that's an easier way to say it. And then both a speculative ET seeing us, like how that would work out. Um, but really, uh, I think the interesting thing for me when I saw that is projecting and returning from human to ET to immortals and back again. Uh -huh. So it's almost like you have to go through this cycle to then get to the other side. But if you don't go through the cycle, then you didn't really learn anything. Is that? I mean, because it's basically like. You have to go through this whole thing about seeing, going the whole logic and everything to come back about how we really see ourselves. Otherwise, we're almost like hoodwinking ourselves into how we see ET, how they see us, mm -hmm. how we think about future technologies, etc. Sure. Yeah. So, um, yeah. You know, I I was pretty proud of that phrase. So. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, yes. I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, just to kind of break it down, so the the reflexivity. Is it's actually something that you do in in anthropology a lot, and kind mm -hmm. of the ethnographic working method is you um, you try to under understand yourself in relation to uh, people who you're immersed with, and kind of the meaning. Yeah, so the the reflexiveness is kind of like um, is this mode of kind of self analysis too, in relation to kind of your analysis of others that you're asking yourself the same kinds of questions that you're asking of, of others to try mm. to understand yes, yes, yes. their culture. So it's this, it's this very kind of circular, meditative um, mode of kind of, of thinking through your, your work and your research. Alienation, of course, is this like 
I mean, I, I meant it in, in several ways, which I hope is clear, right? So the alien is obviously, um, in, that, in that word, alienation also kind of refers to an intense and sometimes, um, sometimes scary form of, of solitude or, or loneliness, right? Mm -hmm. When you're alienated from, from others. Sure. Um, so reflexive alienation kind of taken together as a phrase is meant to refer to um, the kind of, because we are so far that we know of cosmically alienated, right? We don't have, we cannot communicate with mm -hmm. ET. That creates this kind of reflexive looping back that in, that informs, it, right? It's the cosmic echo chamber. It's, um, it's, we don't have any object by which to kind of uh, better, um, better search for life beyond Earth, and so we like we loop back and we loop back. Because that's the only thing we have, really. So we have we have we're, we're looking around for some type of foundation, and that's really the only thing we have is ourselves. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it, but at the same time, exactly like you mentioned, um, seeing Earth f as as an alien might, trying to understand humans as aliens would causes that it's like that's the inverse, right? So there's two starting points. Mm. There's from Earth trying to imagine alien others. Then there's trying to emplace ourselves in how ET would have behaved so as to better intercept a techno signature. So it's this kind of like like double kind of looping back and forth. Right. The the immortality that you mentioned um, does not refer to some kind of like mysti mystical quality. It's it's the idea within SETI science that ET would have been to um, kind of take on God-like qualities. And mm -hmm. the, the two qualities that I'm kind of thinking of, Avi Loeb at Harvard, um, you know, it's, it's not that he necessarily thinks that this is the case, but certainly considers it a possibility that, that life could be made in a lab. And so mm -hmm. perhaps alien others could create life and then, um, you know, implanted on some planet, and then so in that sense, they they have they create life in the same way that in this like you know biblical it's like Prometheus, sense. You know, yeah. All, it's like someone, yeah, they're seeding the life in themselves, right? Sure, yeah. sure. There's also I think what Jill Tarter says that that ET might have been able to, and right, this is all speculation. This is not necessarily like their sole belief. It's just oh, yeah, sure. it's just something that mm -hmm. they think about and that I've talked about with them. Um, Jill, Jill thinks that, you know, what we were talking about before, that um, technology and morality would have progressed together, ET could have perhaps overcome apocalypses that we're familiar with on Earth, and then become this long, long-lived alien society who, you know, who their L would be basically infinite to the... Mm. So um, in that sense, they've, like, achieved immortality simply by simply by not dying. Right, persisting. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. Exactly. So this is not like this, it's not like a mystical thing. So when I use the word immortality, it's um, it's the creation of life or kind of the, the pursuit of, the pursuit of immortality, I guess. And so in those ways, uh, E.T. again is this aspirational figure for like, for, for futures that humans could possibly mm. take. And so in thinking that E.T. might be that way, it inspires us to live long enough to find a techno-signature or to develop technology to create life in the lab. Mm -hmm. So in that way, imagination of alien others sketches possible human futures. Mm -hmm.
That's interesting because it's almost like that self-fulfilled prophecy comes about just by feedback loops. And then mm -hmm. it's like, well, we're just going to keep with this feedback loop. Sure. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. we're, we're just going to stay over here. Sure. Um, so, okay, so let's let's wrap up the dissertation and, and the senses. We just talked about godlike entities, uh, about how, like, you know, we would see aliens if, if and then non-human animals we talked about before. But we didn't talk about prehistoric human relics. So I don't know if you want to just maybe gloss over that quickly about what exactly that kind of thought process immediately for me it's like prehistoric human relics that that seems like the uh the figurine of the woman it's like she has breasts or something you know it's like something like that like prehistoric mm -hmm. kind of times so then but i don't i don't know you tell us sure yeah i i can't remember what those figurines are called um that she's you know really pregnant yeah exactly right? and then she has yeah, large breasts because it's about fertility yeah yes, she's exactly. like the, the ancient goddess of fertility which of course has many forms right um yep uh, yeah, the, so the, the prehistoric artifact, um, is again, this other analogy that study scientists use to kind of think about, to think about not just aliens themselves, but if aliens made artificial objects that would be coming from their past that we would perceive in our present, which is how, you know, we think about things like Stonehenge, right? It's, it's mm. obviously not created um, it's not part of the of you know the natural landscape. Somebody, somebody like dragged the blue stones from from Wales. <laughs> yeah, um, in this precarious position, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, that has you know, it, that, and it has something to do with uh, with the solstice or, yep. or the right. It was it was what are those what do those objects do? They gesture at the concept of intentionality, mm. um, that there was this artificial object created by intentional makers right. who put things together in a purposeful way. I just started starting to think of cave painting as well. Because if, yeah. if, if it was these megalithic structures, well, then mm -hmm. also like... In like Lascaux, yeah. Lascaux would be mm -hmm. the, the, the thing. And then recently, they, I think they've even said that uh, specifically how it was drawn, like in the rocks, was specifically made for like firelight. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So like they would, they would go around with a torch or something and walk around and then like the, the play of the fire on that specific type of rock would then Created make it this like dynamism, move. yeah. Yeah, and then it's like, whoa, wait a second. Then they were, they were watching movies back in the day. Yeah, you know what right. I mean? Like, what are we talking about, you know? That's funny, yeah, yeah. That's, that's really funny. Yeah, exactly. So when, when you see the, a cave painting like that, um, you recognize it as something made by by human hands for for a purpose, yeah. and in a lot of ways, that's that's what the search for not not the leakage that we were talking about, or the um, narrow banding, the, yeah. the narrow band yeah. um, intentionally sent signal that would maybe be directed exactly at at Earth, right? That not only did someone go through the trouble of creating a techno signature, but perhaps knew that we were here and, and directed it at Earth. Right. Um, so, yeah, that that's kind of the prehistoric monument thing. the The way that alien, the, the way that um, it's not just it's not just techno signatures as artifacts, but also physical structures. So there's mm -hmm. um, things like a, a Dyson swarm oh, um, sure, or a Dyson yes, sphere, yeah, yeah. yeah. or or even that that could be some kind of brain, right? This is like all speculation, sure. you know. Uh, yeah. So a few years ago, I think in 2016, there was the this strange dimming of the star that couldn't be explained oh, by yeah. uh -huh. by astrophysical models and astronomers started to wonder you know is it a group of is it like a highly dense um, cluster of comets no 
is it this, is it that, no. And, and I think that they ended up thinking that it was um, just oddly behaving dust that, oh, right, that right. just like didn't like fit their, their models. Um, but at the time, people started, to, you know, after they checked off all of these boxes, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, like could it possibly be a Dyson swarm? And a Dyson swarm is, um, is called that because of the great astrophysicist um, from Dyson who had speculated, I think in the 1960s, that an alien megastructure would encircle um, a host star and uh, funnel all of that energy back to kind of the, the host planet. And, and this would be that Karandesh or Kar- Kar- Kardashev, Kar- yeah. Kardashev skef- skef- one, Kardashev, right? okay. yeah, yeah, civilization, or uh, Two, two because, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. because basically you go from your planet to your star then, right? That's, that's the scale. To the whole galaxy, yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So that's so a yeah, big bigger. jump from that, but yeah, it's a Dyson but Swarm. I know, like I, always, I know, I always forget the one, two, or three. What the, right. There's like a planetary, there's... I think we're like 0. 0.7, right? Because I think it's like we, we're not even one yet. Like mm-hmm. we're, we're almost there. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but the Dyson Sphere or Dyson Swarm would be part of that like second layer where we would basically be good enough on our planet and we would be understanding technologically or et cetera to how to get energy from our star. It's it's harvesting the whole energy of of the host star. Right. So we so we, you know, we harvest <laughs> such a small percentage yes. of, of our sun, um, even though it's this wonderful resource like, mm-hmm. you know, talking again about climate change. Oh, techno futures? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, right. So in this because the Dyson swarm would occlude the light from the from its host star, it would appear to us that the star was like dimming in this or, weird yeah, way or something. Yeah, yeah. blinking. Something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. interesting. So that's like kind of where the artifact comes in. Well, but but even it, that you mentioned about even how we see like uh, I think it was Avi Loeb right from Harvard. He's the recent guy with like Amor Mora. The Amor Mora. Uh, yeah. Sorry mm-hmm. about. I mean his kind of whole. I don't want to say thesis, but his whole idea is that that was almost like cosmic junk you know what i mean or like that was the junk from civilizations that were too smart or conscious and then that's what we're seeing and it's like that's a very interesting thing because then that also like how did you get to junk you know what i mean like how did you get to um processing trash and stuff like that well the only reason why is because we do that now you know it's like we we only have one frame of reference and then also the only uh What's interesting as well with the Drake equation that if we keep going farther and farther away and people get further and further away, then it's only more going to be reflexive, right? And how you know the, the planets and galaxies are all going away from each other, going away, it's, it's only going to become more reflexive back on ourselves if we can't actually talk, much less communicate, or much less see any extraterrestrial life. Mm-hmm. So it seems like we're going to put a lot of our baggage into that. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so now we've talked so seriously about ET. Let's just have a little fun. What is your <laughs> best, or maybe, I don't want to say best, but what is your uh, most endearing, I guess you could say is a better word, uh, sci-fi representation of ET? Like, is it going back to the old school, you know, the little green men, or is it like the gray guy with the big eyes, or is it like some thing that we can't even think about? You know, what, what's your kind of feeling about ET? Sure. <laughs> you know, I'll, I think I'll indulge this because I think that the imaginations of ET ultimately say um, our own hopes or, or fears, right? Um, Back to that reflexivity. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, I, you know, I love sci-fi, of course. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, we talked about Ender's Game mm -hmm. and the, the aliens there, they're called the Formics and they're this, they're bug-like in there um, and they have like this hive mentality. You know, I don't know. There are probably many, I, I hope that there are many different kinds of aliens who, you know, what could flit through dimensions, who have figured out quantum Wild entanglement. Yeah, 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 yeah. like, you know, who have create, you know, found, found ways to like tunnel through the universe using wormholes or tesseracts like I think um, yeah what so I mean really I have no idea nobody has nobody has any idea my my hope for them um, is that they uh, I, yeah gosh I, well, I, I mean, really do you have don't a favorite know. representation because like for us recently we we love like Arrival you know, well, like, so that's why you say that. You know, Ted I was, Chiang and his short stories yeah. and stuff are much more a utopic kind of vision rather than a typical dystopic sci-fi. And so that, that's just one that came to mind. And well, that's a different kind of take. So what I really like about The Aliens in Arrival is that, that that movie is so good because it bends time and space, which is ultimately what SETI researchers are actually trying to do. They're trying to defy kind of the limits of, of space-time. Mm -hmm to right if the timing isn't right we were talking about you know life emerging and and aliens dying kind of in this like homeostatic balance and we're we're too young or too old to right. find them or communicate with them on either side i i like the aliens in arrival because um because because they found a way to bend time and space mm -hmm. and that's that's how i hope Aliens would the, bending time and space for good sounds right. great <laughs> to me. Yeah, Tag sounds long, really good. Play yeah, uh -huh. bending time for sp space and time for good. Yeah. All right, good. That almost sounds like a 1950s like <laughs> slogan or something. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Okay. Um, so second to last question then. Uh, so y you have kind of uh, you've moved out here to LA. You're starting uh, some fellowships, and then so you actually started a new project. Um, I just found this on your website says, I'm beginning a new project situated in feminist posthumanism. The project asks, what are the computational processes scientists have used since the 1950s to configure software and hardware, assemblages that are shifting traditionally perceived thresholds of li liveliness, livingness, to find novel forms of life beyond Earth? So I guess what, now that you've kind of not moved on from SETI and stuff, because I'm assuming you probably have a close ear to the pavement with all this, but what's, what's kind of next? What, what's, what's up next for you? Yeah, so this is, that second project is very aspirational because I still, I'm, I'm working on turning my dissertation into a book now, okay. but, the, but the second project in feminist posthumanism, posthumanism is kind of a, it's, I guess it's like an area of, of scholarship that seeks to understand how what we call the ontological um, uh, character of the human is kind of being further destabilized by um, non-human entities like animals and computers. So, uh, okay. yeah. Yep. So honestly, sure. since getting a dog, I've been thinking about animals <laughs> a lot. Um, and and in in this moment where AI is really shaping our world. I'm really interested in kind of the phenomenology, which just means kind of the experience the, of, of perception, mm -hmm. how we perceive our world, how non-human ways of sensing and perceiving are, um, are brought to bear on kind of how we see ourselves as, as, as humans, mm -hmm. um, how we're entangled with all kinds of non-human others like 
you know, puppies or your gut microbes or, sure. um, or, or just, just these entities in the world that are um, making us realize more and more that we're not the center of the universe. And bees. Save the bees. Save <laughs> the bees. Yeah. Save the whales. You know save the bees. <laughs> yeah. So non-human modes of sensing and perceiving, including um, maybe a self-aware uh, AI system, um, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of my second project. Uh, what kind of started this is actually something that MIT like Tech, the magazine, reported on. It's, it's called the Animal AI Olympics, and it, it, pits, um, it pits computer system avatars. Like if you imagine a video game and you're, like, you're controlling like a mouse or something, mm-hmm. doing logic tasks that are, um, that are like... Y- you compete against kind of animals. So mm-hmm. there's like uh, like some kind of, I think it's like an orangutan solving a logic puzzle to like get a piece of food. Can you build machine learning programs to like do that faster? Oh yeah, yeah, sure. So I, I just think that this idea of kind of humans, animals, and machines, excuse me, how these three entities are, um, are being reworked together in this, in this moment. That's very so, interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, because there's a lot of degrees of, of ways you can take it. For me, I'm already thinking about like anthropomorphizing, you mm-hmm. know what I mean, and stuff, yeah. and how that comes, even reflexivity back and how right. we even see what they are capable of doing just by what we are biased on. So Yeah, do robots need to look like humans, right? right? exactly. You know, yes. if you, like brain, brain implants, how does that change, like that, how does that form what we call cyborgs, like cyborgian mashups of, of humans and machines? Um, sure. So and how so much of so much of our lives now are informed by self-tracking data. How many steps did I take? Like, what is my oxygen level? Yep. Like, um, you know, having a hearing aid. Uh, those kinds of technological devices that kind of get mixed in with kind of the fleshiness of of being a human. Mm-hmm. Um, how are those? How are those um, phenomena reshaping what it means to be human? So that's that's kind of the area that posthumanism is, and I'm really interested in it. And then, but it's also not just posthumanism; it has a feminist, fe- feminist overlay on it, like specifically, mm-hmm. as you say, like because you're obviously we're past Me Too and all this stuff. Like it's it's a new world, if you will, and there's a lot of feminist uh, and queer ideology and things like that that are now coming into the mainstream, if you will. Yeah, so I think so. Queer is this um, capacious term that kind of just refers to any kind of mode or movement that that subverts kind of like a dominant ideology. Mm. So like cyborgs, I would say, are like inherently queer, um, you know, and I'm interested in feminist theories of the body, like how how is kind of, how are cyborgian mashups reforming human bodies, especially, especially, um, what we think of as, as women's bodies mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, for instance, I mean, a, a good example of how feminist theory can apply to posthumanism and 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 kind of thinking about AI is is why is Siri gender? Why is her voice gendered as mm-hmm. as like a as um as female, right? right. Or, or even sorry, as a woman. Like, why isn't she mm-hmm. your like Italian grandmother like yelling at you? Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, right. Or something, you uh-huh. know, or like some kid who doesn't talk. Like, obviously, again, there's that range. You know? Yeah, and so, <laughs> and so as, a, as a feminist theorist, I'm interested in kind of analyzing technology from, from the perspective of, of kind of um, systems of gender, systems of race, systems of 
bias like narratives about that. So yeah, that's awesome. that's my new project. That's your new stuff. That's my okay. new stuff. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Well, okay. So last question, and this is what I ask everyone. Uh, so okay. basically, and this is kind of. Uh, to not exactly throw you off, but makes you kind of think. And we've we've touched on a lot of this, so don't don't freak out. Or you know, okay. it's basically, um, if you were kind of uh, say up at the ISS and they had a video feed, you know, and you're experiencing the overview effect, but then that video feed is literally just going to everyone in the world. Do you have anything that you would say? Like, do you have? Uh, it doesn't have to be like a what is it that Bill and Ted's actually adventure, you know, be kind or, you know, but, but it's like, is there one thing that you like just feel very, uh, called to, you know, is it the SETI stuff? Is it the postmodern or is it the, nothing? You know, we've had people that said, well, I just, you know, not really say anything. So I don't know if, uh, you experiencing the overview effect would be anything for you to talk of, but if not just that, then if the, is there any words of wisdom or last things parting stuff? It's more to, for you to say. Yeah, well, so you know that they read the, didn't they read like Genesis or something when the, in the first overview? I would not do that. Um, I'd probably read a poem by, um, I don't know, Sappho or Rilke. That's what I would okay. do. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, maybe uh, we'll have to get that poem and put it in the show notes. So that Sounds maybe... great. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Cool. Um, well, if there, do you have any other things that you might want to talk about? Uh, other things? Yeah. If no, not, go aliens. I mean, yeah, <laughs> like, please contact us if you're, li- if you're listening right now. Yeah, right, yeah. right, right. More, more of the same. Uh-huh. Well, cool, Claire. Uh, well, I guess that wraps us up. Uh, so thank you for coming on Eclectic Spacewalk Conversations. Thank you for having me. It was really, really fun. Appreciate it. Yeah. Eclectic Spacewalk presents Conversations, a podcast about the uniqueness of the human condition and how, through conversation, we can continue to upgrade humanity's value systems.